The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman. I'm in Sydney today for my first time ever in Sydney, indeed. Uh, and I'm here with Emma Jane Granlees, EJ Granlees, who's managing partner at History Will Be Kind. EJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. You're, the, you're our first podcast guest from Australia, I think, <laughs> or at least in Australia. Um, and I really wanted to talk to you about some of the work you're doing here at History Will Be Kind, um, but, but about your career as well. I mean, History Will Be Kind, if we want to give our listeners some context, it's, uh, it's an agency that you started, what is it, five years? Five years ago, yeah. Right. So we actually celebrate our fifth birthday last week. Oh, um, happy birthday. So thank you. So a big achievement, I think, to get that far. Yeah. Um, but I've had a cracking kind of few years in market here. Yeah, you have. You've gone from nothing to... Yeah being you know, one of the bigger consumer independents in the market? Yep, I think that's correct. I think we had a really good start in terms of a kind of very clear vision in terms mm-hmm. of what we were trying to create and the people that we were trying to hire. So certainly for me, coming from a global to then my own startup, mm-hmm. I was very focused on really integrating digital technology and innovation into consumer and into communications. Sure. Um, and then fortunately, got some strong foundation clients um, which led us to actually win Agency of the Year in Year Two for Ad News. Oh wow! Well done. Um, of course, you joined History Will Be Kind after several years at Weber Shandwick, yeah. which we'll talk about yeah. later on. Um, but let's go back to the beginning of your career, because you were at Red Consultancy uh, in London during a pretty fertile time for that agency. I think in the late '90s there were a lot of uh, industry leaders. Uh, who worked with you there, people like Warren Johnson from W, Chris McCafferty from Caper, Mark Perkins from, um, also from W, and John Cunningham from Weber Shandwick. Yep. So do you have any stories that are fit to tell <laughs> on the podcast? A lot that aren't fit to tell. Um, certainly, I think Red at that point was a really strong place for, for young talent, and we were fortunate to be there when the business grew very significantly um, mm. under the leadership of Dave, um, Leslie and David. Um, certainly, I'm still in touch with all those guys. We were all at the same level at that point um, and really strove to kind of stretch our thinking in terms of the creative work we were doing, the types of clients we were working on, and certainly pushing the boundaries of some of the campaigns that we put in market at that point. So mm. I think all together, um, we've managed to stay in contact for that 20-year period, certainly have learned a lot from each other and still support one another where we need to. Yeah, that's cool. It's good to hear. I always love those kinds of... <laughs> PR family yeah. tree <laughs> stories. Um, but what do you think, I mean, do you feel like the experience at Red, because um, it was a really, it was dominant in many ways in that period in the, in the consumer market. Um, do you feel that's uh, impacted your own leadership style now that you have your own agency? I mean, I think certainly um, I've always been quite a competitive individual. And I think certainly kind of Red made me layer that with a level of entrepreneurship um, mm-hmm. and also an openness to take some risks and not be scared of giving things a chance. So I think the culture there really enabled you to be confident in your thinking and equally to kind of really think about how to mitigate risk as well where Mm. you needed to. So it very much encouraged that spirit and that's something that I've really kept through my career. Yeah, it's interesting to see how people from that 
era at that agency have, have gone on yeah. to, to bigger things. So after Red, you decided not to seek another job in the UK. Why not? Um, I certainly felt at that point in my career, I was kind of senior account manager level, um, account director level, that there wasn't another agency in London that I wanted to work with. I definitely felt I was working with the best people at the best agency. Um, so I decided to kind of stretch my wings, go traveling for a year or so, um, and try working in another market. Ended up landing in Australia purely because it was an easy transition from a visa perspective, um, and English speaking, which was important at the point. So landed here and kind of continued from that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, aside from the, the better weather, obviously, yeah. um, did you find it a, a difficult transition at all? Um, for me, it was actually quite easy. I didn't mm. actually know anyone specifically within the marketplace, although Kate Van Beek, who had been at Red, had moved over a few years prior and she very much supported me when I arrived, which was amazing. Mm. Um, so ended up kind of freelancing in a number of the Big, bigger agencies, um, mm. so I went from PPR to Roland that then became Edelman, oh, yeah. um, and then ended up moving to Weber probably within the first year of being in market here, mm. um, and was specifically brought into Weber to lead the PlayStation business that they just won. Okay, and you spent several years at Weber, uh, ultimately did. rising to, yes. to lead the agency. Yeah. Um, how long were you there for? So 10 plus years in wow. the end, so okay. a long time there, and certainly I think what I enjoyed about that ex experience was I initially started within consumer, but then ended up obviously shifting to various different roles, um, leading tech, mm. um, being across corporate and healthcare, being the creative director of the business, and then ultimately GM and running both Weber and Golden Harris within the market. Yeah, well. So they gave me that opportunity to really stretch my thinking and equally my ability to work across different industries. Mm. And what would you think the lessons you learned at Weber are that have, that have kind of helped you now? Certainly for me, I think it gave me a very good grounding in terms of process and structure and actually running a business very effectively. Obviously being part of such a large global um, has its um, challenges in terms of reporting um, and obviously management from a financial perspective, but it's made me very laser focused on how to structure a strong business and structure a business which is focused on growth as well. Mm, okay. Um, and then what made you decide to strike out on your own? So I had two kids um, within 18 months, um, so wow. okay. ended up then consulting um, because obviously managing those, those young children and thought about do I continue with a more business consulting lens or do I actually then start to build a client portfolio, which I'm a regular kind of strategic consultant to. Mm. Um, I ended up getting quite a lot of work quickly and then ended up kind of building out a freelance team, so made the call to actually transition to actually being a startup mm. um, and creating a brand proposition as well in market. Sure, and and you joined, you became part of a, of a bigger group, right? Yes. The Deep End group. So in order to scale, I had a very clear view that I didn't want to be, I suppose, restricted by some of the things that hold up small businesses in terms mm. of, you know, just tech support, um, logistics, back office activity. Um, so I wanted to join forces with a number of um, leading independents to make sure that I could scale quickly. Um, obviously invested in doing that in terms of both space and also kind of those shared services, but it certainly enabled me to really focus on the business and the clients and growing the team rather than the logistics of small business, which I think can really slow down scale. Mm, okay, and, and, and so you, you, you became part of the Deep End group, yeah. which was already established at that point? Um, so yeah, so Deep End in Australia is one of the biggest independent digital agencies. Mm -hmm. um, 
So for us as well, it was really that combination of thinking about technology, innovation and communications and how we could work together. So within the group, there's Nomad, which is our creative tech business. Mm. We have DeepEnd, obviously, which is the core digital business, history from the comms perspective, um, How to Impact, which is an innovation consultancy run by one of the ex-founders of What Is in the UK, mm. um, and then equally started Versa in September last year, which is a voice experience agency. Okay, well, that's very, very on of yes, the moment. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> Um, and do you all collaborate? I mean, is that that's clearly the, the, the idea? Yeah, here. so certainly I think we're all independent business owners, um, mm -hmm. so obviously can lean on one another um, for support from that peer perspective, and equally I think pull in the different minds that we need to across the businesses, which really creates some rich thinking. Um, and broadly, there's a probably about 20% shared work across each of the businesses, and I've always felt probably keeping that 70 to 80 percent direct to market work with history is really important in terms mm. of our own brand and establishing who we are while also obviously enabling the team and clients to get the benefit of the broader group. Mm. Do you feel that the work you're doing has changed considerably um, over the last five years compared to perhaps what you were doing towards the end of your Weber career? Yeah, I mean, certainly within the market here, when I started history, I had a very clear view um, that I wanted to be digital in our DNA. Um, that kind of impacted the people I hired initially. So initially, I was the only actual comms person in the team. Um, I had a digital strategist, a social media manager, a designer, and a um, community manager as well. So certainly for us, it was more about what's that moment of connection, that story which can really kind of we engage consumers in, and then think about how do we explode that out across channels. Mm. So as the business has grown, you know we've got writers, videographers, social experts, um, digital campaign managers, paid experts, PR journalists. So it's mm. an eclectic mix of storytellers, and I think it enables us to lean into both written traditional comms, but equally visual audio mm. um, and word of mouth as well. And in terms of the mix of work, is it largely consumer or do, do you have is a, it a tech? A full breadth, yeah. Mm. I mean, certainly from my perspective, I think my years at Weber made me quite eclectic mm. in terms of how I view um, the work we can do um, and the clients we want to work with. Um, so certainly for the likes of the International Convention Centre here, who are a key foundation client for us, um, it's very much a corporate B2B campaign mm. um, where we've worked in the last four and a half years positioning them on the global stage um, as a world leader in terms of international venues for conventions and entertainment, um, right through to Google where we're their retained partner across machine learning, their hardware narrative, maps and search as well, through to big FMCGs like Nestle where we work across their entire confectionery portfolio. Mm. And it's interesting compared to Weber, obviously, you know, you're not part of a global network now, does that matter at all? I mean, it does seem to me in some respects Australia is, is a little bit isolated and I wonder how that feels for you. Yeah, I mean, certainly I think I enjoy being part of the network and it mm. gave me that rigour. Um, in terms of the market here, um, it's always been quite buoyant in terms of boutiques um, mm. and startups and I think from that as well, you have your own connection points with other independents within the marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, equally, you know, we're doing very well against all the big internationals at the moment. They're often mm. who we're pitching against. Um, and yeah. certainly we're winning the market where we can um, against those guys. The main difference for me is just bench strength. You know, so yeah. we don't have obviously the back end um, strategy functions or creative functions that they necessarily do. Mm. Um, although we very much have the ability to create ideas quickly and take more risks than they do. Sure, and they have other challenges yeah. when it comes to accessing those functions anyway. Yeah. Um, interesting, you talked about the dynamic between 
uh, boutiques and startups here and the, and the networks, it really s feels to me like this market has shifted towards the, um, to the boutiques, the independents, um, and, and away from the networks, I feel, compared to, say, 10 years ago. Um, do, do you think there are any particular reasons for that? Um, I think often in a global portfolio, Australia can potentially um, be one of the renegades in some way, and so the clients here are often given the option to go to a broader play of agencies, mm. um, and they're enabled to do that through the network. So I think that, again, you know, we're still dealing with procurement with a number of these big clients, um, mm. but certainly from that kind of global model of discounting and negotiation, Australia is often left yeah. to, to its own devices in some respects. Okay. Um, and I think the creative and the ideas that come out of this market um, really shine in the region. Absolutely. There's no doubt about that, I don't think. Um, but it's interesting that you know, clients, they have that freedom and they often opt to go with a, a new agency. In, in many markets, a client wouldn't do mm. that because it's too much of a risk. And there's a, you know, no one ever got fired for, yeah. for hiring <laughs> IBM. You know, I doubt anyone ever got fired for hiring Weber Shandwick. Um, but people are willing to take a punt here on a new agency. I think probably in terms of that ability that Australia has to kind of be positioned, they like to be the underdog and support the underdog in some mm, way. So yeah, that idea of strength thinking and supporting up and comers. Mm -hmm. um, and equally that ability to be kind of quick to market and more nimble, I think from a client's perspective also positions them well on their kind of internal global stage. So certainly I think there's an appetite yeah. Um, to do that type of work. Yeah, interesting. Um, the, the creative work you mentioned coming out of Australia has, has always been of a, of a high standard. Um, why do you think that is? Um, I mean, there's a, a lot of diversity in the market here in mm -hmm. terms of obviously a lot of people land in Sydney, such as myself. I came for a year. It's now coming up to 20 years later. Mm. So I had the opportunity to work in the region, but certainly have kind of come back to Australia as my home. So I think it does nurture talent in that way. It's a, a good place to live um, in terms of lifestyle. And I think often that diversity of people from the US, from the UK, from Asia, landing in Sydney creates kind of a good kind of hotbed of, of talent, mm. um, which can nurture that creative thinking. Yeah, well. and we're certainly, you're seeing more in terms of integrated work, in terms of digital first yeah. work. I mean, how big a shift has that been here? So that was the very premise of history when I started, mm. um, was to really harness the power um, of that change within the landscape. Um, certainly that kind of has impacted everything from the work we do, but the types of people we hire, and importantly as well, conceptually the idea of you know, the, the types of product that we can put out to market. Um, so we look at everything from the user experience of content to voice experience um, to innovation and technology as well and how we layer that into communications. Um, certainly that's what stood us in good stead for the last five years but we're actually at a point now of again reinventing what we do and how can oh, we really? stretch the boundaries of communication to take us to the next level. Okay and I mean do you see a lot of um, activity in terms of the, uh, you mentioned voice uh, yeah. enabled. Certainly, you know. um, we were very fortunate in this marketplace um, where we won the opportunity to launch Google, Google Home into mm. Australia. I mean, most markets, Amazon have been first to market, so it's quite a unique experience to be first to market within the voice category. Mm. And that gave us a very kind of good overview and lens as to conversational strategy and communications roles within that. Mm. So certainly, 
we do a lot of work with our clients, both in making all their content and their stories SEO ready and importantly voice ready as well. Mm. We do a lot of conversational strategy and to take brands who are thinking about using voice um, into that next generation yeah. and to create compelling stories that consumers can engage with both within their news feeds, the newspapers and equally their voice experiences within the home. Mm. And so to do all this, presumably you're bringing in talent that maybe some people would consider non-traditional yeah. within a public relations agency. Um, how hard has it been to integrate that kind of talent? Have you had to change the model at all? Um, so I think from the talent perspective, um, I've always started with a very broad play. It's not a position, it's a person. Mm. Um, so potentially within the kind of conversational strategy arena, we work with script writers, um, people who have been much more involved in film. Um, I think what I've found interestingly is traditional content developers um, tend to be more static in their view of content and they're missing that kind of hungriness that PR people tend to have in terms of what is that hook, what's that nugget that's going to really connect and mm. certainly as a business, um, whatever your background, I try and instill the idea of we've still got to find that moment of connection and mm. then think about how do we explode it out across channels. Sure, okay. Um, you mentioned that you're reinventing again. Yep, that's okay. definitely on my agenda. Um, <laughs> on the to-do list. Yes, on the to-do list. So Number three, so, yeah. reinvent. So I think you know, we've had an amazing five years in market and I think what really made us kind of stand out and punch above our weight was I had a very clear vision um, about what history could be and about how we could drive convergence in terms of talent and work. Certainly, obviously, a lot of businesses are now kind of catching up to that. Um, so for me, it's always about, you know, what next? I want to be leading change, not following change. Um, and I think in order to do that and in order to keep our place within the market and, and win the market and retain the clients that we have, and we need to evolve. Mm, okay. And anything more in terms of what that might look like? That so evolution? certainly leaning into voice, um, mm. leaning into how we're engaging consumers within innovation as well. So we're doing some rich work in terms of involving consumers, both in product development within the FMCG space, right through to companies' CSR strategies, so consumer-led innovation, um, and then equally thinking about how will kind of the next generation engage with brands and obviously voice being a key player within that. And so how can we start building up the credentials of organisations to own those arenas? Mm, okay. And any particular challenges you see that might hamper your, your continued growth? Um, I mean, obviously the convergence of the agencies within the marketplace. So mm. we come up against you know, media buying agencies, ad agencies, PR agencies. So certainly yeah. um, you're often in a very competitive pitch environment. Um, the above-the-line agencies are all um, developing, obviously, social and content-led work now. That's their bread and butter from a campaign perspective, particularly within some categories such as FMCG. Yeah. So just being managing to navigate that landscape where mm -hmm. you've got a lot of big players all fighting for the same yeah. type of work. And presumably all fighting for the same type of talent yes, as, well. as well. I mean, yeah. how hard is that to manage? Yes, I mean, the talent market here has always been a challenge. I think mm. we're fortunate to have a, a very strong reputation in market at the moment. I've been very focused on reputation and build, both in terms of awards, but equally judging awards and mentorship within the industry. So that's supported us in our ability to scale quickly. Mm. Um, and we have been growing quickly year on year. So talent for me is always number one. Yeah. And any concerns economically? I mean, it seems to have been a real boom kind of here, boom era in yes, Australia, agencies have I mean, been growing. Broadly, the economic environment is looking much flatter, um, mm. and I think predictions are that traditional kind of PR itself is 
probably going to you know, flatline this year in some ways, but equally there's still growth within that content and, and digital space. Mm. Um, so for me, I don't like to necessarily differentiate that much between you know what channel you take it to. It's more around what's the great story. Um, and then let's think about the channel second. All right, cool. Well, EJ, it's been really good to talk to you. Um, good luck with you. History Will Be Kind. Oh, that's what I just remembered. Yeah. Final question. Um, how did you come up with the name um. <laughs> and what does it mean? So I think part Good of the joy of a startup um, um, is obviously and hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast. play with ideas um, and take some risks. And certainly for me, I wanted to come up with a name which was, was challenging and made people stop and think. Mm. Um, so the full quote is from Winston Churchill and it's, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. And certainly in terms of how I operate the business within the marketplace and instill confidence and entrepreneurship in the team, it's all about making our own mark and everyone's ability to make history. Mm, excellent. Not sure history will be so kind to the current generation <laughs> of British leaders, yeah. but um, that's another topic. EJ, thanks so much. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report. Uh, and I'm here with um, an agency called Poem in Sydney. Um, so, gentlemen, if you'd like to introduce yourselves. Uh, my name is Rob Lowe. I'm the Managing Director and Co-Founder of Poem. And I'm Matt Holmes, Co-Founder and Executive Creative Director. No relation. Excellent. So, you guys set up Poem when? Um, roughly about three and a half years ago. Okay. Uh, and why? Why? Um, we've, we've had a lot of experience working within very creative and dynamic PR agencies in Australia and the UK, um, but most recently they were all owned by holding groups and we saw an opportunity to be able to start a fully independent agency that did PR in a more modern way. So um, bringing in more creativity and strategy in a more uh, holistic look across all of the channels and how PR ideas can be expressed across paid, owned and earned media, hence our name Poem. Um, and bringing that to life uh, in a way that uh, clients find uh, easier to work with, better staff, and more human nature. Mm. Okay. So you've been, how many people are you now? We're 13 at the moment, um, and we're waiting for a couple of new hires to start. All right, so it's gone well? Yeah, it's gone really well. We've, we've won a lot of awards, which is nice. That's not the be-all and end-all, but mm. um, we've done very well in a very short period of time. The last year has been a real change for us because um, we've won some real cornerstone clients in, in PlayStation and Blackmores, and I think that's allowed us to grow and upskill a whole lot more than, um, uh, than what we did, basically try and fulfill the vision that we've got for the company in the future. Mm. And what is it do you think that clients are buying into in terms of your, of your proposition? I think, as Rob mentioned, that kind of human nature, we, we launched the agency with this principle of being more human. Um, that kind of has, has two meanings. Uh, it sounds kind of very ethereal, but it's actually something that we do apply every day, really, in how we interact as a team. Um, it's also part of the actual creative ideation process as well. We're very much focused on genuine human insights and always challenging briefs as to why really anyone is going to care about the, the product or the story that we're putting out there. So, yeah, that, that approach has really set us up well and has really resonated with clients in the last uh, three and a half years. So you both use this, uh, this phrase, more human, and, and you both came to Poem after working at holding group agencies. Were they less human? Um, I think people tend to care a little less about the business and the outcomes and the relationships when, um, 
when you're sending so much of a margin off to an offshore company that you've never met. Uh, and I think that being independent uh, allows you to invest a lot more in your staff, the quality of the work, um, and in the time that you spend on um, the outputs of your agency. Like we, we're, we're looking to create an agency that lives far into the future, whereas I think in a holding group, a lot of the employees are actually just trying to um, live from month to month. Mm. And it seems like that's it, the market here is very receptive to independence, or maybe to put it another way, there doesn't seem like a real benefit to being part of a holding group here. No, I think one of the greatest things uh, and one of the biggest things that I've enjoyed since starting the agency is, is the opportunity to really cherry-pick the right team for a client brief. Um, that and seeing the team build, or building the team that we have done, and, and really bringing in talent from other disciplines. Um, we've deliberately hired from media agencies, from creative agencies, uh, from in-house brand publicists. So we've got a really eclectic team. Um, that helps from a cultural perspective. Uh, it's much more representative of the kind of audience that we're trying to target for clients. Um, and it gives the best results, I think, for, for clients because it means that we are able to provide a kind of bespoke team for each and every pitch or uh, ongoing client relationship. And again, that, I mean, from past experience, that's not something that most of the other agencies do. It's much more of a cookie cutter approach and you know there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors in the pitch process of senior talent that gets rolled out or even flown in from overseas with the networks mm -hmm. that clients in reality don't see and that's something that um, we absolutely uh, don't promote and Rob and I uh, offer a lot, I think a lot more senior client counsel to most of our clients than would probably be provided by most of our competitors. Mm. And do you feel there's an opportunity for um, a PR agency here to actually take on the kind of lead role in terms of creative, in terms of brand building? Uh, I mean, I th the answer from us is, always, is definitely going to be a yes. I think Rob and I have got quite a unique career, or quite un unique career backgrounds and the experience that we bring to the table in working in integrated agency environments. Um, Rob, with his experience at TBWA, mine uh, have asked both uh, two different agencies um, here in Sydney and, and back in London when I first started my career. So I think, you know, even probably about 15 or 20 years ago when I first started Cake, which was one of my first agencies, had this um, principle around brand entertainment even before that became you know, a, a major term. Uh, and within that business there was designers, there was an, an events team, Web 2.0 when, <laughs> when that became a thing. So we've always been surrounded, I think, by people who have um, different skill sets and we've deliberately built the agency to be um, <coughs> to be more of a hybrid of a, of a PR and creative agency. Um, I think from various trade titles to clients we've occasionally been challenged in the last three, three and a half years as to whether we're even a, a PR agency or at times whether we really want to come up with a new definition of what that is and we don't really have any interest in confusing clients or the market any further with more marketing terminology. I think in, in, the easiest way to think about it, the agency is that it is a hybrid between a, a creative and a, a PR agency and um, when, when we are in a, an agency village scenario we know how to work the politics of that, we know how to play nicely, we're not, um, we're not perhaps um, 
was focused on land, land grabbing budgets or was predatory again as some of the other clients and I think one of the great joys is of being independent is that there's a lot of creative, some of the best creative agencies are able to come to us because we are independent, we're not connected to holding groups and that allows us to um, work on some pretty major campaigns when you're a growing independent agency and also it, exp it exposes the team to, to disciplines that ordinarily a lot of PR agencies and, and practitioners just don't get the, the opportunity to experience. I think if, if clients are looking for the greatest impact, you want an idea that's going to work through the line so that it hits the consumer at every single touch point. If that idea is an advertising idea, it's not going to be shared as much. If it's an earned media idea and it can live naturally across all those channels, people are going to share it and it's going to exponentially grow beyond what your media can actually pay for. Mm -hmm. And that's the advantage of starting with an earned media creative idea as opposed to anything else. So advertising agencies are trying to do that. PR, if you've got the right mindset, is actually already in that perfect position because we know what it is that makes an earned media idea. Mm. So the next step for us and our, our kind of vision for the future is really not only to be able to come up with that idea and execute it across multiple channels, paid owned and earned media, but then actually be able to retarget on that noise that we've created, hopefully noise that people care about, um, and bring people further down the funnel. And that's the next step of the PR evolution in our minds, is to be able to engage people and then retarget and bring people further down that funnel to an actual purchase so that you can actually show measurable business outcomes as opposed to just PR outputs. Sure. And in terms of finding the right kind of talent to drive um, that kind of creativity, is it just a case of hiring from the advertising agencies? Um, look, I mean, to be honest, the talent side of things has been one, probably one of the biggest challenges, particularly at the scale that we're at now, where um, we've built a really solid reputation. We've got some great, um, really well-known um, clients. And it's a small market here, right? You know, the, the days of PR agencies just fighting amongst each other for talent has gone. Creative agencies, you know, have recognised in the way, obviously, you know, TBWA brought Robin. When Rob and I founded Poem, most, the, the most obvious next step, which wasn't something we wanted to take, was building an arm of, a PR arm of an advertising agency. That's where most of the offers were. Um, so it, it is really tricky. Um, it's, it's not simply a case of poaching from advertising agencies, um, even the social space, which you know, has, it changes so regularly and as the platforms change their algorithms. And um, I think people who are just focused and are only used to broadcasting ideas or paying for attention, uh, that's not going to particularly sit well with us. I think you know, we're always going to develop ideas that have some kind of earned merit, whether it's news currency or or social value, and there are, there are, you know, there are even social strategists these days that can't see how an idea can live outside of that one, one um, channel. And we're most often looking at omni-channel and channel agnostic ideas that, you know, it could be a TVC, it could live on social, it could have live in, in editorial. So, um, no, th those kind of people that do see the bigger picture are few and far between, and they're the kind of people that we're interested in and. Um, it's something that we are, for some of the junior guys that we've hired, that's again something that I think they're particularly excited about in really getting that kind of, that broader um, overarching understanding of marketing and PR and it really helps future-proof their careers, hopefully long-term with us, but if not in other markets, it, I think it really sets them in, in, in the right kind of direction for, for the future. 
What do you think the world can learn from um, the Australian PR market? Um, <clears throat> the Australian market's quite unique compared to a lot of other territories in that a lot of our traditional media has shrunk and the media that is still there is owned by two or three big bodies. Um, and it's forced us to think differently about how we approach PR. It's no longer a matter of doing uh, a photo shoot with a number of um, uh, reality TV stars to be able to get an article into a newspaper. Mm -hmm. You have to think a lot harder about what the, the insight, the human insight that people are gonna care about and the idea that's gonna really engage people before you then feed that out across channels. So in Australia, media relations has become a part of everything else that we do from a PR sense. Um, but it is, it's still an important part, but it's just one of many different things that you need to think about if you want to engage consumers in the kind of media channels that they're actually consuming. Yeah, and I think just to add to Rob's point, I think the, the tailored pitch, um, you know, there's so many conversations around the merit of me, uh, press releases. And I think this market, if you don't tailor your pitch, you know, you're, you're dead in the water from the beginning. I think being a small, well, I think actually small is not the right word, like mid-sized boutique agency as we are now, um, the kind of level of service and the rigor that goes into a media strategy is one part of a, a campaign launch. Um, again, it, I think it is on a, it's on a different level of detail than I think in other markets because you, you just can't get away with um, I mean, I even hate using this term, but the spray and pray methodology of some of the perhaps market, other, other markets and, and the tabloid press, we just don't have it here. So you have to think really carefully about how a piece of content is going to be cut in multiple different ways for, for an editorial piece, um, for the social media channels of that news channel, uh, for our own channels. Um, and particularly as there are so few media outlets, you're often trying to carve up the same story in two or three different ways to, to give an exclusive um, and, and get that kind of major scale with syndication. So it is a very different approach. Certainly, having now been here for nine years, that was probably one of the biggest shocks to me when I first came over from the UK. And the, those big kind of red top ideas with realities and celebrities, it just it, it really doesn't work that well here. Overseas talent um, is certainly a, a tactic that can work because of the the dearth of um, bands that tour, you know, just proximity and some of the biggest Australian talent are over in the UK and the US. So when they do come back over, access is at a premium for, for media. So that is a tactic that can work. Um, it's obviously gen generally a bigger investment for, for clients to do that. But um, It's funny, actually, I think 15 years ago when I came to Australia, the reputation of Australian PR was that it was purely stunt-based. Mm. And the people I was working with at the time that Freud's wouldn't hire Australian PR professionals because of that reason. They were trying to be more strategic. Mm. And it's kind of, I wouldn't say it swaps because I don't know the English market as well anymore, but... But... <laughs> Sorry, my mic just mic dropped. Drop. <laughs> <laughs> Impromptu. Impromptu. But um, definitely, uh, because Australia has forced to be more creative about the way we do PR, if you find the right people with that experience in Australia, I, I think they've actually got an advantage over some of those other territories now, something that, that we never used to have before in Australia. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, not just looking at PR as one discipline and, you know, trying to create this media versus creative versus PR, I think, you know, personally I'm really proud of um, the industry as a whole from a creative perspective. If you look at 
um, some of the creative awards and obviously so many different opinions on how you value those and, and judge them. But Australia and New Zealand for that matter punch far above their weight in terms of you know, budgets uh, and scale, scale of businesses and I think that's a massive credit and testament to the talent pool here. And again, as Rob mentioned, I think you know, there is a bit of a derogatory potential view of Australia as a bit of a backwater and it just, it just isn't the case. And I think the proof is in the pudding and some of the work that is celebrated um, around the world, two of which from uh, creative agencies this year that you know, are two of the most awarded campaigns ever, Dumb Ways to Die comes to mind. Yeah. You know, there, there are pieces of work that have taken the world by storm. and. Um, we live in a global world, so you know, online content has the opportunity to go outside of this market. And that also is a tactic that we apply sometimes with campaigns is actually deliberately targeting UK and US audiences to get momentum on, on content and then bring it back to Australian media because yeah, to get that kind of credibility of a story when it's already been um, gaining momentum overseas is something that works quite well for us. It seems clients here also are quite happy to take on a level of risk um, that you might not see in other places? Yeah, I mean, I guess Australia's traditionally been seen, I think, as a bit of a test market from some of the global brands. So I think, yeah, there is a little bit of a, maybe a little, little bit more flexibility in, in that case. Um, again, it's difficult, given that we've both now been here for nine or ten, well, ten plus years, to, to have a, a strong point of view of what's going on in the UK. But we obviously do, as the British and Australian connections are still very strong. We have an eye on what's going on over there and um, with a number of hires and people that have moved over to Australia and come back again. So we do keep an eye on what's going on. And um, It's probably a little to do with the organisational structure as well. A lot of brands let Australia get on and do what they want to do a little bit more. Yeah. They're not as close to home. Um, so there's a bit more separation between headquarters in the US or Europe. Are the client teams more integrated as well, do you think? Yeah. Totally depends on the brand. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, that's one big advantage that I think we may have in the future is being able to bring, usually you should leave it up to a client who then coordinates their different siloed disciplines mm. to then do something that all works together and then be able to retarget on that, on that campaign. Mm. A lot of clients, I, I don't think, have the internal coordination to be able to do that properly. Mm. And I think that's an area that we want to try and grow into is to be able to come up with the idea feed that idea out there and then control the media spend and the retargeting to bring that all back to a natural business outcome. Sure. And that might not be for a big multi-million dollar campaign that's led by advertising, but for more of those mid-tier kind of campaigns, that's, that's an area I think that we can really help with. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think in, in that, yeah, I guess in, in, in that line as well, it's, um, we are massive advocates of, of the PR industry selling itself better you know it's obviously an ongoing irony that the PR industry generally doesn't PR itself particularly well um, yeah we're trying to put a little bit more pride into into the industry and maybe kill some of the old um, myths of what a PR practitioner is and those old personas and I think by the industry growing up a bit and selling ourselves on genuine commercial and business output it goes a long way to help um, cement our position at the top table when we do talk to marketing directors and brand managers as often as we do talk to the kind of day-to-day -day PR client and that's definitely been one of the significant changes I think for us in improving 
the business and commercial results for the work that we do it allows you to have that conversation cool well guys thanks so much it's great to see the progress um, of poem uh, we'll be watch we'll keep on watching your continued growth no doubt um, hopefully we can get you back on the podcast soon thank you thanks for having us you've been listening to the echo chamber Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.